From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. David McCall, Assistant Professor of Turfgrass Pathology at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. David got his degrees at Virginia Tech, and he received the Outstanding Recent Alumni Award, which recognizes an individual who has made significant contributions shortly after graduation. In addition to his research in turfgrass pathology, David teaches golf and sports turf management classes at Virginia Tech, where he is a member of a very strong academic program in turfgrass science. I sat down with David recently to discuss his research on turfgrass pathology in the transition zone, his work with remote sensing and drones, as well as GPS-guided spray applications. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we're grateful to our partners at Dryject and Intelligram. Assistant Professor David McCall, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Your work is in plant pathology. You've got a variety of research projects in a region that's well known for tough disease problems. I mean, I've had conversations with Lee Miller in the west end of the transition zone, assuming you're at the east end of the transition zone. And he describes it as a place where you really can't grow any grass very well because of the different conditions that uh, persist. Now, it might be quite a bit hotter in St. Louis, but... In your neck of the woods, as a plant pathologist, there's still a pretty good demand for chemical control research and chemical screening work as part of your program. Is that still a big part of your program, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, th- you said it perfectly. Uh, this is a unbelievable place to be a pathologist. It's a horrible place if you're actually trying to grow grass for a living. In Virginia, we've got a lot of different climates, similar to the Carolinas and some of the other areas within the transition zone. Here in the mountains, we may have a hot day of 85 degrees and humid, but then as you move across the state, you get towards uh, the Richmond area or the Hampton Roads area, it may be 95, 98 degrees, much higher humidity, and we see a lot of different diseases throughout the state. And it sounds like that kind of a growing climate, you know, much like we have in New York, where we've got the mountains of the Adirondacks and the areas, you know, way up to the north. And then you've got the soupy, hot, humid conditions of the New York metropolitan area. So what I don't have that you have is you've got two different hosts. (laughs) You've got cool season hosts and warm season hosts. And so I'm sure you have warm season grasses in the mountains. And sometimes they probably struggle when it's a little cold. And having the cool season grasses out in the Hampton Roads area, and that's like a little bit too hot for the cool season grasses. Absolutely. I mean, basically, it's kind of like what uh, Dr. Miller said. We can grow any grass here. We just can't grow anything well. We struggle. We um, are in the midst of this major uh, transition in the eastern parts of the state. We're actually growing a lot of ultra dwarf Bermuda grass now, which even five years ago, I would have laughed at that. I would have thought there's no way, but... We're already close to 10% of the golf courses in the state having ultra dwarf. And it's fun for me as a pathologist because I get to learn something that's completely different than what I've been doing the last 20 years. Which has been mostly diseases of Bermuda or zoysia in fairways and then bent grass poa problems on greens, yes? Oh, we've got it all. We, <laughs> we've got lots of zoysia grass and Bermuda grass fairways where we deal with a lot of large patch. Certainly spring dead spot is a major, major issue for us. 
but then we also have a lot of bent grass fairways. We've got a lot of bluegrass. We've got a lot of what I call the Heinz 57 yes, fairways right. where it's a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. So I've had the opportunity to work with most diseases over the years, and it's it's been really nice to get to see all of this variety. Well, and last year, it seemed like one of the big stories throughout our neck of the woods was gray leaf spot. In fact, Bruce Clark talked about losing part of his lawn to gray leaf spot. Uh, it was so bad. Do you grow enough ryegrass or tall fescue, I'm assuming you do down there, to have a big problem with gray leaf spot? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Last year was the worst I've ever seen on tall fescue lawns. I would say still probably 85 to 90 percent of our lawns are gray leaf spot. And a lot of folks throughout the state got absolutely decimated. We have some areas here on campus that had gray leaf spot on tall fescue, but more so on the ryegrass. That's certainly something that we battled just like everybody else. Is it now a matter of staring at thin turf based on that infestation last year? Uh, This spring, are you looking at some pretty ratty ratty looking turf that got beat up or did it get a chance to recover? In many cases, it killed it down to the ground. It completely um, decimated the population. We went through and overseeded. Some people had to go in two, three times because normally it's, you know, September 1st or 15th. It's a great time to seed in, in Virginia. They would do that as soon as the seedlings would come up. They would get hit with another round of gray leaf spot and they'd lose it all over again. So I know of several people that uh, seeded three, four times last year throughout the fall and into the winter time. And now they're still going back again this spring trying to grow in some areas uh, just because it's so thin. So this is obviously going to put quite a damper on cool season grasses in those areas. Are those places where maybe more warm season grass would be warranted now? Certainly that is a possibility. We try to weigh the pros and the cons of both sides of of cool season versus warm season. Again, getting back to you can grow anything here, you just can't grow anything well. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do in in Virginia is we try to educate all of the turfgrass professionals about where the situations may fit best. I think for the golf courses, most people that aren't in the mountains, at least in in Virginia, have made the switch to predominantly uh, warm season grasses. Mm -hmm. Even in their their roughs, they're letting a lot of their roughs just kind of naturally melt away from gray leaf spot or or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're just letting common Bermuda grass come in in many cases, or they actually may be coming through and putting out improved varieties of Bermuda grasses. And along those lines, do you see the new Bermuda grasses, Tahoma, Lat 36, becoming an advantage for guys who want to do that? Is that allowing more folks to put in more Bermuda grasses? The fact that we've got a few that are being touted to be uh, more cold tolerant? Uh, absolutely. We, we've we got several years worth of both research and just looking firsthand at, at people growing Latitude and Northbridge around the state. We're now just starting to get more and more Tahoma. We just installed some Tahoma for our research uh, areas in the Richmond area last week, mm-hmm. and we'll be putting some in here in Blacksburg, probably here in about another month or so. And so, you know, that that's such an interesting development, right? Because you know, now you're going to trade the warming earth, right, is allowing you're almost on the front lines of climate change of, of where you're seeing the line of where these Bermudas will survive. And at the same time, 
you know, we're getting them more cold tolerant. Of course, Meyer zoysia has been cold tolerant forever. Are you seeing uh, more interest in the zoysia grasses as well? Or is, is, is the move to warm season almost exclusively to Bermuda? A lot of that depends on who you talk to. I personally love zoysia grass. I've been a big fan of that for years. In fact, that's what my home lawn is. Mm-hmm. Some of my neighbors have come in. They've looked at it. They've been like, ah, you know, I, I see what you're talking about. And then other people... Are like no, I'm I'm never doing that. At least here in our region of the country. And so, what do they find objectionable? Uh, what's the hurdle, right? I mean, why do you like it and you think they don't? The reason I like it is I'm lazy. I don't want to go out there and uh, be fertilizing and watering and, and doing all those things. I, I do enough of that at work. I'm ready to just <laughs> go home and grab something to drink and and, and relax a little bit in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't really had to do much to that. Which you know, to me, that's that's a great thing when it goes dormant. I think it looks beautiful, especially if you can uh, keep a lot of the the annual bluegrass and a lot of the broadleaf weeds out of the area. Most of the trees, or at least the deciduous trees, are losing their leaves. They look dead in the wintertime, just like the you know what a lot of people say the Bermuda or the zoysia looks like. And I just say, you know what, that's part of the natural biology. That's what it's supposed to do. You can go a little crazy and and see what Mike Richardson's been doing uh, in Arkansas, putting the bulbs uh, in these warm season grasses to try to find, uh, bring some uh, winter interest to them. I, I think he had a graduate student working on a particular project like that because I'm with you. I, I think we are going to have to reimagine not just because you like sitting around relaxing like I do and not fussing with your lawn, like the shoe guy who's everybody, all the kids got bad shoes or, you know, right. us, all of us guys, all of us have bad lawns. But I think that doing less to it and having it still provide a function is a big part of why, you know, the fescues, the fine fescues might be catching on and and even uh, different kinds of lawns that might have uh, flowers and pollinators in them. Uh, I think we're starting to reimagine what the lawn is going to look like. Uh, is that your sense in that area where you're getting those different vegetation types all the time? Absolutely. I love what uh, Dr. Richardson and his students uh, have been doing there. I also give a, a plug in to Dr. Askew here at Virginia Tech. He and his students are actually taking Dr. Richardson's work and incorporating it into uh, cool season grasses as well. So we've actually been out flying our drones over some of the uh, the research sites where they're doing this, trying to collect uh, imagery on when these different bulbs are coming in, when they're spent, when we can start mowing them off to bring in both the the, well, the cool season aspect as well as the warm season. Well, David, let's take a break. I'm with Assistant Professor David McCall at Virginia Tech. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back after a message from our friends at Dryject and Intelligrow. Golf Corps superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. 
Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. We are chatting with assistant professor, turfgrass pathologist at Virginia Tech, David McCall. David, back to, you know, the way we started our conversation. You know, typically plant pathologists are doing chemical evaluations, but, you know, you're an academic and a scholar and you've decided it looks like to go in areas that uh, are more site specific in their management, really looking at the economics of using technology and the benefits it can bring and maybe even enhance uh, and prolong the life of some of these chemicals. And it particularly with your work with uh, pentyropyrad on spring dead spot. But before we get to the disease stuff, you started to use drone imagery to really try to dial in water management. So can you give us a sense of number one, what is this drone work you're doing, the spectra work you're doing, and how does it relate to the need to uh, manage our water better? I will say with a lot of our drone work for detecting drought stress, we are still kind of the early stages. I don't see a lot of what we're doing being something that a lot of superintendents are going to be able to truly utilize. I'm going to say for you know five to seven years or so, hopefully sooner than that. I know there's a lot of folks beyond uh, my group that's working on this around the country. Uh, so we're trying to do our, our small part to kind of get the pieces in place so that uh, as we do move for, towards a more digital society, uh, even more so than we already are, that, that we have uh, the right information. In well, let me interrupt you there for a second, because, I mean, you know, you see what I see. There certainly are a fair number of companies that are marketing in our golf turf space and sports turf space that are touting their ability to detect drought stress remotely, uh, whether it's, you know, turf view with a fixed camera or it's green site uh, with the drone or it's geotech with the satellite imagery uh, over the top. Is that what you mean, that we probably still have a little ways to go before we're going to be able to detect these things? Well, until we get to the point where it is widely adopted, we're a long way away. Um, Certainly we can detect moisture stress. The problem is, using just that drone imagery or that satellite imagery or a sensor mounted to a piece of equipment, whatever it may be, you've got to be able to do that ground validation and and make sure that you know that what the drone or what the satellite is saying is drought stress is truly drought stress. And that's the footwork, right? That's the ground truthing. That's the little bit that everybody's doing, you know, to try to walk around an area that might be drought stressed and then what? Teach the image analysis software to detect that on its own? Do you see part of this long-term to be something that a machine learns? Yes, this we're, we're looking at a lot of uh, machine learning opportunities right now where we go through and we're putting the algorithm into the computer. We're saying, okay, this is what we are saying is drought stress. And then we looked at the spectral properties, you know, that light reflectance, those digital light values that are coming off of each pixel, And the computer basically says, okay, 
here's 30,000 different places that we think are drought stress. And then we have to go in and look at that and, and tweak the formulas a little bit and say, okay, these areas that you're saying over here may have similar properties. We've got to look and see what's unique about where it truly is drought stress versus these areas so we can spit those out of the system. And we're still at the early stages of really using this machine learning to help get rid of the, the bad apples, the things that are other stressors, whether it's a, you know, a nematode issue or a pythium issue or a nutrient deficiency, whatever it may be. We're, we're trying to focus on key areas uh, so that we know it's truly drought. In some of your early work, if we did a deep dive in some of this stuff, I found it fascinating in preparation for chatting with you. You've, you actually tried to determine if spectral stuff was good for determining soil issues. And you basically were saying, yeah, you're better off looking at the canopy than trying to do any spectral imaging of the soil. It's interesting to see that what ultimately does or doesn't get adopted by the industry you know, the development of that technology requires a lot of individual pieces to be looked at to be able to say, yeah, this imagery or this machine can learn what the stresses are. And then, you know, I guess ultimately to predict them. So, you know, when you're parsing this out, what was it about this work that interested you? It seemed to be something you jumped on right away. Why was that? <laughs> it was really an interesting story. And, and it gets back to what you were originally talking about with you know, I do a lot of fungicide efficacy trials and, and you were talking about how I was, you know, I worked here under Dr. Houston Couch and then Dr. Horvath. And basically when it came time for me to uh, uh, work on my PhD, I was still running the program, still putting out the fungicide efficacy trials. And I was talking with my department head and she said, you know, we would love for you to do this PhD, but you need to make sure it's not part of your everyday job responsibility. So I started looking at some things. I found a couple of projects we had been working on looking at coarse spectral properties. I'm like, hey, this is really interesting. So I started diving into that a little bit more using just equipment mounted sensors, made a lot of progress there. But then what really got me involved, I took a, a hyperspectral remote sensing class uh, here at Virginia Tech. And I absolutely fell in love with that. I, I did a, a class project that turned into essentially a way for us to detect herbicide-induced stress five days before we could see any visible symptom development whatsoever. So I'm like, hey, this is really powerful. You know, the drone imagery for water management is one thing, but now you've applied it and brought it back to plant pathology. And you're not, in this case, using it necessarily to detect them well, I guess you are detecting green versus brown, but then you're going out with that little three-wheel thing and you're <laughs> marking them, uh, uh, dropping points uh, yes. as you're walking around. Uh, again, you know, this is research and development stuff, but can you describe the work that you wrote about so great in golf course management? Yes, yeah, so we had an update about a year ago and then the uh, a larger article. Kudos to uh, one of my students, Jordan Booth, who's now actually a research associate with us. He was a certified golf course superintendent working full-time at a golf course. And we talked about a project when he decided he wanted to do grad school. He's like, you know what? Your little three by six plots are okay, but if I'm going to do something, I want something that's actually practical to a golf course superintendent. And uh, I'm like, all right, cool. That's great. I got a good one for you. Be careful what you wish for. But uh, what we ended up doing is, is we... Um, took this spring dead spot project where we built maps over a golf course, over five fairways, thousands of images where we stitched everything together. We figured out the, the spectral properties, those digital pixel values that we were looking for to differentiate the spring dead spot versus the green Bermuda grass. 
you know, we picked that because it's easy. That's yeah. kind of that low-hanging fruit. We thought about doing, you know, NDVI and all these uh, complex uh, or more complex vegetation indices. At the end of the day, what we wanted, is it brown or is it green? That's so exactly that, uh, right. that certainly helped us out a lot. What we did is we fumbled through. We made lots and lots of mistakes. We uh, did stupid things that cost us time and money and, and all sorts of stuff. But at the end of the day, we figured out the right algorithms to use to be able to go in and, and use essentially machine learning to go and figure out where the disease was. We're partnering with one of the uh, equipment manufacturers who provided us a GPS sprayer. Uh, they provided us some technical expertise on making sure we, we knew how to use the basic components and they kind of you know handed the keys over to us and said, all right, do your thing. So we learned a lot about geospatial analysis. We learned a lot about ArcGIS and QGIS software, you know, where we can plug in these GPS coordinates. Mm -hmm. We got to where ultimately we plug this into the sprayer. And then the sprayer looks at our map and says, hey, okay, you got a bunch of points in here. Do you want to spray those? Uh, yes, we do want to spray those. And, and of course, I'm oversimplifying, but mm -hmm. then it, it showed up on the, the map. Um, and it's like, do you want to exclude this or do you actually want to spray we want to spray that and then essentially it you know we had already plugged in all the coordinates we just essentially went through and and essentially sprayed like we would with a normal you know a typical sprayer mm -hmm. uh however we had uh, had this on individual nozzle control the software that we had used had the gps coordinates we plugged that into the receiver and then as we drove over each one of those spring dead spots from before when we built the map, mm -hmm. it triggered the, um, the solenoid to turn on. We sprayed just that area, and then it shut off. Now, here's the thing I want to make sure we understand. I got to make sure I understand it. You know, you mapped the spots from the previous spring dead spot infestation, but then you went back in the fall and treated those areas when those spots weren't there, yes? Yes, that is correct. And everything was green and, and people looked at us like we were crazy. Yeah, okay. I, okay. Why are you spraying green grass? So yes, that's exactly what we did. And, and it seemed uh, illogical, but uh, we knew that there was disease there. We also know a little bit about the epidemiology of this disease. And we know that it's going to reoccur in the same spot you know, for, for several years at a time. It seems like what motivated you from the article was that people have been using these multiple applications of tebuconazole, mostly because it's effective and it's cheap, for a long time for spring dead spot. And it looked like they needed a, some new chemistry to start using it. And that chemistry turned out to be enormously expensive. And so it certainly seemed to make sense that if you were only, if you were able to get by with just treating what you had a problem with last year, the only weakness is how much does it spread outside of those spots from the spring to the next one? I do see that you had enormous success in reducing the chemical use 65%, I saw you say in, yes. in one writing. Did you get the same level of efficacy in those spots going spring identification to fall treatment? Yes, and that's the beautiful part of this. We looked at both pixel counts and we looked at the number of patches from one year to the next to see how successful we were with our, our site-specific applications. And statistically, we were able to produce the equivalent amount of control as if we blanket spray everything with the Pentio Pyrad over the entire surface. 
So that's where we came up with the 65% savings without reducing uh, overall efficacy. And then what I really like what you did at the very end is you said, okay, here's your fungicide program with a GPS. Here's what it costs you every year to do these maps. And I'm assuming the generation of maps is the drone flies over, scans the landscape for green versus brown, comes back and says, here's where there's brown, tells the sprayer and the sprayer goes out the next fall and that's what they spray their spring dead spot on. And it looked like you said essentially within three years, uh, you're paying the same price as you would if you didn't have a GPS sprayer. Right. And, and that is if you only factor in this one single application with where the industry is when it comes to GPS sprayers right now, we're still trying to get comfortable with it. We're still trying to figure out exactly where it fits in. These type of prescription type maps, I think, you know, we can do that, but I think the true initial adoption, what, you know, some people are doing right now is just looking at that day-to-day savings. Uh, I was actually just out at a golf course this morning uh, where they were demoing a a different uh, GPS sprayer. And I was there with the superintendent as they went through and and did their traditional spray versus the, the GPS spray. And at the end he said, huh, I just saved 20% just right there. And that's just if they were going to be going out, say, making a, a PGR application or a fungicide application across a fairway. Let's say you take that thing out 10 times a year for various sprays or 12 times, whatever. If each time you're saving, you know, 800, 1000 $1,200, whatever it may be based on the products that you're putting out there, that's going to pay for itself much, much quicker. Yeah. And then when you in, start incorporating the things like what we're doing, where you know, in one shot, you can reduce 65%. I think that's where you, we truly, really see that quick return on investment. David McCall, assistant professor, turfgrass pathologist at Virginia Tech. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back after a message from our friends at Dryject and Intelligro. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi, and I'm with the turfgrass pathologist at Virginia Tech, David McCall. David, 
We had a lovely conversation there about GPS that ended up with really talking about chemical reductions and and dollar reductions and, and certainly labor reductions potentially. Certainly that makes a lot of sense to do that. But in addition to that work, you've really started to look at alternative controls to traditional chemistries. Uh, I was really pleased to see uh, your work with uh, ferrous sulfate. Can you talk for a little bit first? Why did you think about doing iron work? And then we'll get into the meat of it. <laughs> well, it's actually exactly what you just said there. Um, so back when Dr. Irvin uh, was here at Virginia Tech, he had a, a graduate student, uh, Nate Reams, who was looking at these super high rates of ferrous sulfate to uh, suppress POA and silvery thread moss. Uh, he called me up one day and he said, hey, do you mind coming out and meeting me at the, the trial? I want to show you this. He had, at that point, almost complete control of dollar spot in all of the plots where he had put out the ferrous sulfate. Now, granted, this was at, at high rates. This was one pound and two pound per thousand square feet, but he had excellent control. That led us to putting out some supplemental studies where we looked at you know, we had our untreated, we had our ferrous sulfate, we had a chelated iron and then an elemental sulfur just to see if we could tease out exactly what was happening. And the elemental sulfur, at least in our studies, did essentially nothing. The chelated iron was inconsistent. It Sometimes it suppressed, sometimes it didn't. But that, I don't want to say silver bullet, but that truly consistent treatment was our ferrous sulfate. So we decided to dig a little bit deeper with that. We wanted to look and see if, you know, whether it was just impacting the plant or if it's actually impacting the fungus. So we did some in vitro work where we brought the fungus back into the lab and did some uh, studies to look and see what was happening. And we did in fact show that the, I assume the iron component of this was actually inhibiting uh, fungal growth of the dollar spot fungus. So we're like, all right, well, there's, there's truly something to this. We built on the studies from there. Do you think that some of the things that happen to the canopy or the phytotoxic response that you get from the grasses when you use these high rates of iron is contributing also to maybe why dollar spot is controlled so effectively with this approach? I certainly have seen the those leaves kind of curling up a little bit. I've seen that phytotoxicity, uh, that blackening, especially at higher rates. That's got to have some impact on it. Um, certainly, when you try to dial in the rates a little bit more and and have you know something that's not quite as phytotoxic, we're still seeing the response. So I do still think there's kind of that contact fungicide, if you will, um, uh, mechanism of, of disease reduction. I know you've added rolling. Uh, what are you starting to see with the relationship between rolling and dollar spot? Right. Yeah, we've we've done a lot of work with that. Um, what, first of all, we one thing I do want to mention, we have kind of fine-tuned our rate of ferrous sulfate and, and basically everything we're doing now, we're going out at, at a half a pound uh, or eight ounces of product um, as opposed to what we originally did. So that's what we've been doing when we're looking at you know, incorporating it in with rolling. Uh, how that came about, we know uh, from both some of the anecdotal data that's out there, uh, as well as uh, some of the work out of uh, UMass that's showing that fairway rolling can reduce dollar spots. We obviously know a lot about the ferrous sulfate too uh, in terms of overall efficacy. So we wanted to see how those two things interacted. We've had two summers of this and in looking at how these two things interact, basically what we've seen is the ferrous sulfate is kind of ruling the roost in terms of what's most effective for reducing the dollar spot. All right, David, listen, as we wrap up, I understand you're getting a, n- a new teaching position back. Yes, we're excited about that. We uh, want to um, certainly bring in somebody and, and start building the uh, 
the undergrad program and the undergrad research program. David, thank you so much for talking with us and keep up the great work you're doing. Dr. David McCall, Assistant Professor of Turfgrass Pathology at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing business management John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.